0: Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution Podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution Podcast.
1: Hello. Hello and welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we revel in some lesser-known stories of the early American presidents and their families. I'm Howard Dory.
2: I'm Jess Dory.
1: Today I've got three different segments to share with you: segments of fear, Ooh. love, oh. and greed. Oh. Halloween is fast approaching, and we are going to start out with a ghostly tale from yes. Andrew Jackson's home, the Hermitage. Okay. In a conversation with the director of interpretation there, Brian Gilley.
2: Oh, awesome. I love spooky
1: stories yes. so much. Then we are headed to Massachusetts to explore the very much not haunted Adams family homes and the most enchanting little library with the curator of the Adams National Historical Park, oh. Kelly Cobble.
2: Oh, I'm sure you want to live in that library. Oh,
1: my goodness. <sighs> and our final act is related to a heist that took place in that library. Oh. And involved the theft of a priceless book related to John Quincy Adams's work on the Amistad case. Wow. Yeah, and the wild story of the FBI's efforts to recover it.
2: Oh, cool.
1: First, let's start. I stumbled across an article about the ghost tours that they do at the Hermitage in uh-huh. October. Uh-huh. And how one of the employees there, Brian Gilly, experienced something that he couldn't explain.
2: Is this who you interviewed?
1: Yeah. So I reached out to find out more about the haunted hermitage. Uh, Let's take a listen.
2: Oh, yes.
1: Thank you for joining us, Brian. We love lesser known stories about the early presidents. And with Halloween just around the corner, we love digging into creepy stories. Now, I've never had the pleasure of visiting the hermitage. I went to Tennessee once when I was young and, and we visited Graceland which was cool, but I understand probably very different from the hermitage. Can you describe what Andrew Jackson's hermitage is and and what it includes?
0: Yeah, so uh, the hermitage is in the suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, it's a very short drive from the downtown area. And it is a remarkably well-preserved historic site. We have 1,120 acres of property. Wow. Wow. The Hermitage is one of the last actively farmed properties in Nashville. Uh, We leased out about 300 acres of farmland, so it's still a farm two centuries later. And the Hermitage is one of, if not the most original, early president's home in the country because the furniture in the house, the artifacts sitting out on display in the house are largely Andrew Jackson's actual stuff. So, the house looks very much the way it did when Jackson was living in it in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s.
1: Oh, wow. And you're the uh, the lead interpreter there, is that right?
0: So, I am the director of interpretation. So, oh, okay. uh, I'm in charge of all of the tour guides or interpreters, whatever you'd like to call them, and I give some special tours like VIP tours and our In Their Footsteps tour, which is based on this enslaved experience at the Hermitage, so... I handle those tasks.
1: Okay, great. Now, I understand that the mansion there has a history of of hauntings. Yeah. Can you you tell me a little about that?
0: Yeah, so um, to really understand the Hermitage as a haunted um, house, if you will, (laughs) um, you really have to understand how it began as a museum, because no president's home just automatically becomes a museum. Somebody had to make it a museum. So, Andrew Jackson Jr., the adopted son of Andrew Jackson, uh, sold the house to the state of Tennessee in 1856, and it became the very first publicly owned president's home. But it didn't stay publicly owned. The state of Tennessee originally agreed to pay Jr., as we call him, $50,000, which, you know, it's a lot of money for 1856. Sure. And um, he ended up staying an additional three years. So they ended up giving him $48,000. And he was only gone from the home for one year um, before returning back to the hermitage with the uh, permission of the state. However, they never had any sort of rental agreement or um, set parameters for which they were allowed to stay. So any day the state could show up and say, hey, we got a plan for the home. Get out. Hmm. But that never really happened. So the home did see some disrepair over those years. You know, they're not—they don't have the financial means to care for the home the way it once was. And living in a home that someone could just kick you out of any time would be—you uh, know—you're not going to do a lot of those maintenance things to it. But it was pretty much still intact the way the Jacksons created it. So it was preserved. And in 1889, a group of women started the Ladies Hermitage Association, a nonprofit organization built specifically to save the house and okay. teach the story of Jackson. So the family was still living upstairs in the bedrooms upstairs until 1893 when Andrew Jackson III moved to Cincinnati. So the nonprofit decided that they should hire a caretaker, someone that could stay at the property and watch over it, um, which was necessary because in those days, the Hermitage was really far outside the city. Mm. And at that time, it was really hard to get to where the Hermitage is. Uh, It's about 12 miles from downtown Nashville to uh, the Hermitage. But at that time, the road to get there was so bad that What should normally take an hour or less took around four hours. Mm. So it was way out in the country. And uh, these ladies decided that they would stay in the home for a few nights until the caretaker could arrive. And they never talked about what happened that night. But in 1915, one of them, Mary Doris, wrote a book called Preservation of the Hermitage. And in it, she tells her ghost story. Mm. Um, They spent the night in the home and they would sleep on the floor and, you know, kind of a rolled up bed situation. And they had their lanterns beside them and it gets dark and they have their dinner. And the person who prepared their dinner left to go home and they settle in for the evening and they blow their lanterns out and fall asleep. But it didn't go as planned, as you might expect. Um, In the middle of the night, they're woken by the sound of dishes crashing all over the place. Mm. And they hear a horse gallop across the room and back out the, the door. But at this time, the hermitage was largely unfurnished. There was nothing in the home because Andrew Jackson third had taken those things with him. So neither of them got up brave enough to get up and inspect. So what they did was uh, they waited till the next morning and... Uh, As expected, nothing was out of place. Nothing was amiss. So uh, at that point, I would probably be done. Like, all right, well, see ya. I
1: I think I would have been done earlier. Like at the first hint of a a neighing horse where I know a horse is not, I'm gone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would have been done for sure. But I got a story of my own. I'll tell you in a little bit. So the next night, they settle in again and these are some brave ladies because they're staying, and they end up hearing the same exact sounds the very next night. And again, nothing was amiss, everything was in place, and neither of them ever talked about this until one of them publishes that book in 1915. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's an incredible book. Um, it, it has a lot of information that we wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so it's a, it's a great source, but you know, it, it is written for the time period. And it's strange that she has all the, all of these details about how they established the museum and who was on the board and what the hermitage looked like at the time. And she doesn't get every detail correct because remember this is 25 years later or more, Mm -hmm. but, uh, very interesting that her ghost story is in that book.
1: Yeah, I get the sense sometimes that I mean, my sense of the past is that people were living their lives, doing their things, and oh yeah, you know, there might be a ghost, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like now, you you said, uh, or I said earlier, I would have been done at the at the first sound of a, a nay. I, yeah. pro- I I probably would have been done earlier than that at the point where someone was like, "Hey, let's spend the night."
0: <laughs> yeah. Now. I have my own ghost story for the Hermitage as well, and a lot of the staff do have their own stories. I'd love to hear. A lot of historians are really skeptical of things they can't prove, and I tend to fit in line with that. So my my thought of ghosts is, okay, well, it could be, but I need to see it. <laughs> so
1: hmm.
0: um, we were renovating the home the sprinkler system in the home two maybe three years ago Uh, and we were taking out the old sprinkler system which was needing to be replaced and we replaced it with a very high-tech sprinkler system which is actually now in mount vernon as well and uh, someone had to stay in the home at night to watch the house for fires Um, and i was a a part-time employee at the time and you know eager to help out in any way i could and they said, hey, you want to get some extra hours and stay in the house at night? And I was like, sign me up. I'm doing it.
1: Now, I have to ask, was there is there a guest room? Is there is there cable? Like, what was your situation of like what what does spending the night there even look like?
0: So because I was watching for fires, I had to stay awake. So hmm. there's no sleeping. Um, and there are six bedrooms and some of them have multiple beds. But, you know, I'm not going to sleep in Andrew <laughs> Jackson's bed, of course. So I had like a a camp chair, you know, a folding thing, and my my flashlight on uh, my phone, and there was a construction light if I wanted to use it. So very little in the way of lighting, and I was in there for about eight hours. Of course, the first night that I did this, it was storming outside, and there was light, tons of rain, and um, they locked me in the house and say all
1: right <laughs> they locked you in like you could have left right you're not like sealed tight right
0: no 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 there were keys and stuff but okay the door, the door was locked so okay uh, my assignment was to stay there i also had a radio so should i need to communicate with the uh security on staff at night i could have um so every now and then security would call and check in on me hey how you doing you still good in there stuff like that uh but i chose i, I I had an idea. I was like, okay, I want to read some books about Jackson, but I'm going to read them in Jackson's house. Wow. I read John Meacham's American Lion, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning book on Jackson. But I started there, and I read also read Andrew Jackson's Southerner by uh, Mark Cheatham.
1: Oh, yeah. I just uh, spoke to him a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Fascinating guy.
0: I love his book on Jackson. So um, I get to a section of the one of the books, which one I don't recall, but uh, I get to the section about Rachel's death. And I'm mm-hmm. beat from where Rachel died, which as a history person is mind-blowing to read about a historical event in the place that it happened. Wow. Um, so I get to that part and... I'm reading casually, not really thinking about all of that. And it's dark and I hear a loud bang, just right under my feet, a very loud bang. Mm. And it sounded like a crash. And I had already read that book from earlier uh, about the horse galloping and the dishes crashing. And I was thinking, okay, there's the crash. Here <laughs> comes the horse. <laughs> Never heard any horse or anything. So um, I actually stayed in the house 11 more times. Um, And it, you know, it was always a little unnerving because it was dark and you're in an 8,000 square foot house that Mm. um, so many people died in. And, uh, you know, there's tragedies and things like that in the house. So um, it has all the makings of a historic place that would be haunted. It has death and ghost stories, uh, original furnishings, you know, everything you would want out of a ghost story, the hermitage has. One more thing that happened, though. When we lock the house up at night, we use these old skeleton keys, and uh, in the wintertime, it's usually pretty dark by the time we lock up. And, you know, the following year, after I had stayed in the home, I was the lead interpreter, so it was my job to lock the house up at night and have security arm it and all of those things. Uh, So I'm locking up the dining hall door And I hear footsteps right behind me and I turn around and nobody's there. And I remember these footsteps very clear, you know, a historic shoe from that time has a bit of a clank to it because often they have a metal heel Mm. and it sounded, it didn't sound like a tennis shoe. It sounded like a wooden shoe on a wooden deck in the back, which the deck is wood. So, so I'm like, all right, somebody's messing with me. I didn't, never saw anybody, so I put the key back in the door, and I turn the key to lock, and you hear the latch flip, and the footsteps are within three feet this time, mm. and like the hair on the back of my neck stands up, and it felt like somebody was behind me, and I turn around very quickly this time, and again, nobody was there. And after searching around, there was nobody within half a mile of me. Wow! Just clear footsteps, and I have never had any ghost experiences or weird things happen to me, except for those two occasions at the Hermitage.
1: Yeah, like I—I I mean, I tend to be a skeptic too, but I also know that if I did see or experience anything, I'd just crap my pants and cry. So
0: <laughs> sometimes things happen that you can't explain, and I'm still skeptical. I—I um, I really like facts and evidence and things that I can prove. But I don't think I'm ever going to find an explanation for those occurrences.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I was a ghost and I was trying to get to the dining hall before it closed, I might be angry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there are ghost tours at the Hermitage for Halloween, right?
0: Yes, we do ghost tours.
1: Now, what can visitors expect on a ghost tour there?
0: So the ghost tour typically will have somewhere around 25 people and two guides, so two people on my staff or maybe even someone like me that would start out at the visitor center and we walk you up to the mansion in almost complete darkness and there's big tall trees around and, you know, one night when I was conducting a ghost tour, there was a full moon and the fog rolled in. I mean, it was it was beautiful.
1: Are you holding a lantern at this point? Is there something, is there any light coming from you guys? Uh,
0: yeah, so we have a lantern. We use ah. a, a candle lit lantern of the time period. No, they're not historic, but they look historic. So uh, the guide in the front of the group has a lantern. They're the one talking and the person in the back will have one. I love it. Once we get to the house, we blow the candles out for safety. But um, So we talk all about Jackson's military experience and there's some really cool stories um, about uh, assassinations and mm. attempts fascinations and, um, things like that, that we talk about. And, uh, there's a local legend, um, here in middle Tennessee about the bell witch. You may have heard that. Um, it's something a lot of people in this area thoroughly believe in. And, uh, Jackson has a bell witch story. So we tell people who the bell witch was. We talk about that and we tell them Jackson's bell witch story, which most people have not heard. And then we take you from there, we'll go inside the mansion, tour the house at night. Now there's some lights on, but it's a very different experience to see the house at night. And in the house, you're not getting a regular house tour. You get stories about who's died in the house, where they died. You get ghost stories. You'll hear things about medicine of the day and how that plays into that. And you really hear a set of stories that are not ever going to be on your average tour. And you'll get some stories like the ones I told, which are personal accounts from the guides of things that they've had happen there as well. And after the house, we go through the garden into the cemetery.
1: Oh, cemetery. You're killing me. It just gets better and better.
0: Yeah, so uh, we'll visit the grave of the seventh president and his wife and his family. They're all buried there. Uh, One of the special things about the hermitage is... Jackson is one of the few presidents buried at their house. Mm. (laughs) You know, you survey that list and there's not many, but Jackson is buried there. So we take advantage of that and we'll walk you out to the cemetery and we'll see Jackson's tomb, which is all, you know, kind of lit up at night. And uh, we'll talk about Jackson's death and his funeral and what that was like and present to you the graves of all the other people buried in the garden. So it really is an incredible experience to see the house at night and hear those stories that are largely untold.
1: Yeah, it it sounds really fascinating. And you did a great job of of helping me just kind of picture what that looks like. If listeners are interested in, in visiting the Hermitage and going on a tour, a ghost tour or otherwise, where can they find more info?
0: Yeah, so you can access us anywhere you receive your social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And our website is also a really good source. Our website is thehermitage.com. So... You can buy your tickets online, you can see what our offerings are, you can get some education on the website, and really get a feel for what your experience at the Hermitage is going to be like. So thehermitage.com is is a great source. We do a a timed ticketing system where you purchase your get-in-line time for the mansion, and that means that purchasing your ticket online is always the best way to go.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Uh, it was fascinating hearing your stories, and I really look forward to getting out to Tennessee sometime and visiting the site because, like you said, there's so much history there and preservation as well.
0: Yes. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this is a very special year for the Hermitage. The house is actually 200 years old this year. Oh, Wow was originally constructed in 1821. Uh, of course, it has two other phases of the house's construction, but um, this is a great time to visit Nashville. Uh, Nashville is open, and the Hermitage is a necessary stop if you ever find yourself in Nashville.
1: Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much, Brian.
0: All right. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
2: Wow. Right? That was creepy. Yeah. Do you think you could do it? Do I, you think you could spend the night in the hermitage? <laughs> overnight, in the dark. In overnight. the dark.
1: I, th- do they not have lights? I, I mean, I'm I get so... creeped
2: out of my own house yeah. <laughs> at night. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I can't imagine sitting alone in an old mansion, Andrew Jackson's home, and then to be reading about him. Like, That's I, pretty cool. I was scared enough reading about Andrew Jackson in the San Fernando Valley.
2: <laughs> in the bathtub, no? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Probably. Um. I don't know. When he said there were security out there, though, that made me feel a little bit better.
2: Yeah, but where? Where were they? (laughs) Somewhere
1: on the massive, massive grounds. But that just made me wonder, like, are they not qualified to look for fires?
2: I don't know. Maybe none of them really wanted to work at night inside
1: they're like we don't do inside we don't do inside we are grounds security
2: yeah <laughs> we don't sit in haunted houses <laughs> waiting for ghosts to a boat.
1: no we we uh tase intruders but we are not <laughs> equipped for uh, indoor ghosts.
2: and the other thing i noticed is just how cautious they were about fire
1: oh yeah no you know, cam- well the I mean, place is burned down like we talked about that in the the parrot episode By the way, speaking of parrots. Oh, God. um, uh, At one point, I I did extend my offer to write an adults only narrated audio tour by Paul the Parrot with profanity.
2: You were going to write a whole parody about the parrot?
1: Not a parody. This is an audio tour of the Hermitage. Oh. Narrated by Paul the Parrot swearing. Okay. Yeah, remember how I yeah. offered to that to the Hermitage and in, in the yes. parrot episode? Okay. I extended that offer to Brian gilley and I told him, you know, you don't have to respond now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just think about
2: it. Oh gosh! And hopefully he just ignored it altogether because I'd be really worried first and foremost if he said yes. That might be. <laughs> I mean, that might be very concerning. It was strange if that he said committed. No, he was all in. He uh, said, "You know what? Oh, no. Yep." If he said no, I'd be worried about your hurt feelings. And
1: um, then
2: if he just ignored it, that might be the best route <laughs> for everyone's sanity.
1: I think he acknowledged my presence in a polite way.
2: Oh, what did he say, really, what did he say? Um.
1: I think he just kind of laughed and was like, okay, thank you. I'll I'll pass that along.
2: (laughs) Bless you, Brian. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Basically what he said was, bless your heart.
2: Yeah. And I'll talk to the higher ups. Yeah. Although it sounds like he is the higher ups. He's the director of interpretation. (laughs) So he just said no. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad he's safe. Um,
1: Yeah. And it's nice to know that uh, someone like Brian is on hand to make sure the place doesn't burn down. And And that all
2: is interpreted.
1: Can you imagine, though, if he'd slept in Andrew Jackson's bed? Well, maybe he
3: did. I don't think he did. (laughs) (laughs) Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galeano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form.
0: And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat
1: Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Um, next up is a conversation I had with Kelly Cobble, the curator of the Adams National Historical Park. I reached out to her thinking, maybe these old New England houses have some ghost stories of their own, you know, like the Hermitage. Um, she kindly offered to talk to me about some of the deaths that had taken place there and we we did talk about those But here's the thing she's super knowledgeable and Mm -hmm. kind and absolutely delivered on what I asked for Yeah, but that's not where the story wanted to go.
2: Where did the story want to go and did it go there?
1: Well, you can you can watch the full video of our conversation if you join our patreon That includes those death stories there. Oh, but the story wanted to go to the library one specific, mm. enchanting, hauntingly beautiful library on the grounds there.
2: Okay. So, of course, the story wanted to go there because that's where you desperately wanted to go. <laughs> I can tell You know, was some... I,
1: It's like when you put your fingers on the planchet of a Ouija board and, <laughs> you know, who's controlling it? Where is it going? Who knows? Well, you know. It's going to the library. <laughs> well, that's where we went. So, let's take yeah. a listen. Okay. Great. Uh, Kelly Cobble, thank you so much for joining us. As you may know, we're quite partial to the Adams family here. And I'm really excited to talk to you about a place that I've never been, but is truly just calling to me. Can you tell us what is the Adams National Historic Park and, and what does a curator there do?
4: Oh, well, the park is a, really a wonderful gem of a place. So what we have actually are the two original birthplace homes of President's John Adams and John Quincy Adams, and they are only 70 feet apart from each other, (laughs) and now they're on less than an acre of land, so that's the birthplace homes, and unfortunately we don't have any original material left or furnishings from them, but we do have the original structures on their original foundation, so it's it's really an incredible... uh, feet that we have. And then about a mile and a half from there, we have what's called the old house at Peacefield. Hmm. And that's where John and Abigail um, returned to from Europe and purchased a, a larger home where they lived until their deaths. And then John Quincy Adams inherited the property and then his son, Charles Francis Adams, and then it was owned by the family from the fourth generation up until his death in 1926. He left it to his nieces and nephews, which formed the Adams Memorial Society. They showed it as a museum up until 1946, and then gave it over, deeded it to the National Park Service for um, future education and civic engagement.
1: Wow. I mean, it seems like if there was one thing that was in their blood, it was preservation.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes.
1: Lindsay Chervinsky might have affectionately referred to John Adams as a hoarder in the best way. <laughs>
4: So true, so true. But, you know, kudos to John, because we have what we have, uh, partially because of him. And he definitely somehow perpetuated that um, feeling throughout the generations.
1: I wonder, what is it like working in a place with with so much history around you? The original walls, the halls, at least for me, that's kind of just like a a fantasy of being able to to walk those halls every day. And I wonder what that's like um, during the day and at night.
4: <laughs> well, I am truly blessed. I've actually been here for over thirty years. Wow! I never thought that that would happen, but it did. Um, and actually, many of us are, are in the double digits. Let's put it that way. Oh, that's great! Congratulations! But, uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. It it is one of those places where you have to step back and say, "How lucky am I?" Really. Um, I didn't start out doing this. I started out giving the tours as a seasonal ranger, and then. Um, Eventually led into the museum side of things, which is really terrific. Okay. And what really grabbed my attention was um, midway through my career, when I was a really just an entry museum technician, and one of my jobs was cleaning the books in the Stone Library. So oh, wow. you know, I'd be lost, I'd be gone for hours, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I
1: imagine it takes a, a long time to clean some of those it books. It really <laughs>
4: does, but you know what I. You know, it was my duty to go through them mm-hmm. and make sure that there wasn't any deterioration or bugs or or little notes oh, wow. or <laughs> what we call as enclosures. Yeah, some real treasures.
1: I know that John Adams loved um, writing in the margins. I don't know if the rest of the family right. – uh, Joined in that habit. Right. Or not. So,
4: and of course, we don't have most of his books, unfortunately. They are mm. at the Boston Public Library, which is a good place for them. Uh, we have primarily John Quincy Adams's books and then some of his sons and grandchildren. But it, we have found John Quincy Adams had a very conservative way of marking some of his books. So he had dashes and crosses and, you know, little little marks here and there.
1: Okay, like codes?
4: Kind of, but for himself, I mean, I don't know what they Mm -hmm. could possibly mean.
1: So I know that um, Halloween wasn't really a thing back in the Adams' day. It just didn't really exist in America. And Adams was very much a skeptic. Uh, It seems to me that if there were one historic home that wouldn't be haunted, it would be his, because I feel like if he saw a ghost – Um, He would just argue with it until (laughs) Until it it didn't even go see (laughs) there.
4: Yeah, Um, right. And it's funny. We've had uh, many people come through here wondering the same thing. And I will say, um, since I've had the honor and privilege of working here for such a long time, um, I've had to answer alarm calls and emergencies and um, many different opportunities to be here at all. All different days of the day and night. And um, mm. I have really never felt afraid or uncomfortable being in the house. Actually, I have to say, with all honesty, I really feel love when I'm in the old house and I don't feel fear. So, um, unfortunately, the old house saw plenty of its own death. And uh, there is mm. death uh, all through the house, but um, with some of the, the artwork, but I don't really feel any. Fear, anyway, coming
1: from it. Oh, that's great. For a legacy for John and Abigail and, and John Quincy and Louisa to leave.
4: Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm.
1: um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit, um, anything more about the library. Uh-huh. I know that was built later. Sure. And uh, even if it's not haunting, just <laughs> when I see the pictures of it. Right. When I look at the reviews, uh, people just tend to gravitate toward sure. it.
4: Sure. Well, again, it was the masterpiece of Charles Francis Adams, and uh, it was actually as a request in John Quincy Adams' will, the separate building be built to preserve and to protect his books, and that he never had the means to do it. And fortunately, Charles Francis married a very wealthy woman, so they could actually transform the property from a decrepit working farm that... John and John Quincy Adams knew it as, and into more of a gentleman's country estate, Um, they really invested the money and the attention into preserving the home of their ancestors, but changing the, um, the landscape quite a bit. So it was fortunate that Charles Francis Adams had the means to build the library. And uh, again, over 6,000 volumes of the books belonged to John Quincy Adams. They used to line the walls in the study where, sad to say, John Adams passed away. Um, And then all of them were moved again into the library. And even John Quincy Adams said he didn't read, you know, many of them. Uh, So many of them Mm. were gifts to him on various occasions. And, you know, he would purchase lot items at auction, maybe just to buy A couple of the books that he wanted and then would end up with you know several more that he maybe didn't care about and um,
1: i feel like that's what my wife thinks i do
4: (laughs) exactly well who's keeping your catalog that's what we want to know right (laughs) so it is a beautiful place um he definitely underestimated the size that he would need so it Hmm. it um He had to go really up from floor to ceiling. He thought he was only going to go halfway up and uh, have the top be a gallery, but he had to go from floor to ceiling, and then he does have some railings that walk around, Um, so those became the the gallery where we have portraits of the three men of the three first generations that lived here.
1: Nice. the pictures I've seen in that library, I, I see a ladder. Mm-hmm. I don't see any stairs. Right. Is there another way up? Nope. Or is it just so that ladder? So you can ladder? move
4: the ladder to every corner. There's an opening mm. in, the, uh, in the gallery walkway, and you can move the ladder if you want, or you can walk around. You just leave it. We leave it in one place, and you w- can walk around the whole gallery. But I don't let anybody else go up there, because I don't want to be no. responsible for their safety. So... Um, no, much? you don't want
1: to create ghost stories of your own. <laughs> exactly,
4: exactly. So much to the chagrin of my staff, I have to still go up there and clean the books and inventory things and chase bugs and uh, do whatever else it takes to take care of the books.
1: Uh, so jealous. <laughs> um, is the Mendy Bible there from yes. um, the Amistad? Yes, um, it is. We just recorded a, an episode about that. And
2: Terrific. um.
1: John
4: Quincy Adams would not accept any public display or any formal recognition for what he did. He just said, you know, I did what I did because he wanted to, because he really wanted mm-hmm. to fight for the, the human rights and to preserve the, the, our Constitution. It's an amazing thing that he did, uh, very courageous at that age and um, at that time in his life to take up that case.
1: Yeah. If you could just tell us a little bit about the Mendy Bible and and what that looks like and where that's displayed.
4: Oh, sure. Well, it is um, displayed very prominently on the table in the library. And um, I I shouldn't say there isn't anything special about it, but It was typically something that you would purchase as a presentation gift to somebody. So it was purchased through the American Bible Society. You would call it like a presentation Bible. I have to say it's probably um, maybe close to 10 inches long and 7 inches wide. So it's a good size book. And it, it is black embossed leather with some gold tooling around the edges for decoration. And um, what makes it unique is the inscription. That's what really makes it unique. So it's really printed in English. So it's always mm-hmm. confusing when we call it the Mendy Bible, because a lot of people yeah. think it's in a Mendy language, but it's printed in English. Presented to John Quincy Adams by the Mendy people.
1: Yeah, so many fascinating things about that case, and um, oh the, yeah, the fact that that's the gift that they give. It's just acknowledging the religion that they were sort of offered or moved into and being thankful for his role in it. Really, really interesting.
4: Yeah, I mean, from my understanding, that's kind of how they helped teach them English. They used the the Bible being abolitionists, of course. Religion was primary to their philosophy as well. So it would just make sense. But I think Lewis Toppin really had a lot to do with, um, you know, maybe picking it out purchasing it you Mm -hmm. know and and kind of giving it to them but to have an inscription like that inside um it's pretty pretty cool
1: yeah and i love the fact that it's displayed prominently there right Um, that seems so appropriate
4: even though we did have a scare when it was stolen what? So, yes, it was. I Actually, had no idea. Yes, yes, it was stolen. With Someone other stole books. the Mendy Bible? Well, we don't think they took it on purpose. We think it was a grab and run many, many years ago. So, wow. um, yeah, very scary. But fortunately, it never went very far, and it was retrieved very quickly uh, for the FBI and the Quincy police. The FBI. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, well, wow. because we're a national... Um, federal institution, they were right on it.
1: Let that so be a lesson to visitors. Like anybody
4: beware. Exactly. Yeah. Yes.
1: It's it's not the library you check books out from.
4: No, 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 no.
1: Well that's great that it was um retrieved. Oh. I, I wonder if whoever took it had no idea that it was um even a federal property and that right. the, the FBI I would think, get involved and
3: how right. much trouble.
4: Right. I don't think they did. Um I think it was again, it was kind of a grab and run and um i think because of all the notoriety scared the heck out of them yeah and uh they just ditched them and never went back to retrieve them but they were found
1: oh so no one yeah. was apprehended but it was they were found
4: oh people they they were they they found out who did it but
1: <laughs> okay yeah wow and yeah. they're they're currently in the crypt next to no.
4: exactly exactly <laughs> i wish they were
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time and and for talking about the park. I wonder if if people wanted to know more about the Adams National Historical Park and uh, what you do there and and visiting, uh, where would they go?
4: Well, we do have a website, www.nps.gov backslash A-D-A-M. All right. And then, of course, we do have Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We try to post some interesting tidbits of information and use pictures and items from the collection. So you never know what you'll find. Great. We've actually been closed to the public for a year. So we've really wanted to be able to continue reaching out to people and connecting to people. So it, it definitely, uh, we upped our game. <laughs> so yeah. we'll see. And then May, May 2022, we'll, we'll try for a uh, quote, back to normal. See how see how it goes.
1: Have the gardens or anything been open to oh, visitors, yes, or has absolutely. it all been, okay? No, nope.
4: the actually the birthplaces okay. have been open, uh, because we could open windows and the doors, and and we do actually close on October thirty first for the season, and we actually have had rangers in the cemetery giving tours. So if anybody really does want to celebrate oh. Halloween, uh, they should be trying to come and hook up for one of the cemetery tours, even though that's not in our, you know, that's part of the city jurisdiction, but we still like to be a good neighbor, so we we couldn't help but get involved. Oh, great. The church also gives tours, and they give tours of the crypts and and the architecture, and, you know, they give a a great talk about the uh, religious beliefs of the Adamses, so they do a really good job at the church.
1: Fascinating. I know I have to get out to Massachusetts pretty soon. So mm. for all the folks that can visit, I hope that they do because it sounds like there's a lot of exciting things going on even with the the closure of the buildings. Um, looking forward to May 2022 when those open up. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking to you.
4: Thank you.
2: So I take it our next trips will be Tennessee and Massachusetts. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's just some
1: places we got to get to.
2: Okay. Wow. That library sounds amazing. And I love how you said that the story just took you there, but I think you directly asked about it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think think it's pretty clear who took us there. hmm. Um, But it just sounds beautiful. And what an amazing job to be the one leafing through all those books and appreciating their beauty. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The, that's definitely a job I can see you in, in and <laughs> in all your off time, <laughs> right. but it just sounds beautiful with the railing and the, and the artwork and the Mendy Bible prominently displayed. It yeah. just sounds so beautiful. And what an interesting gift for the Mendy people to give him. It mm-hmm. just, it's so selfless. It's such a selfless gift to think like, Oh, you know, this is your religion, and this is something that you've shared with us, and we know it means a lot to you, and now it means a lot to us because it means a lot to you. Yeah, I just love that, and I can't believe it was stolen. I know, kind of by accident. It sounds like well, I, I don't know. That's a, that's that was interesting. What does grab and go mean?
1: Um, we'll we'll look into that.
2: Oh, okay, yeah. Um. Anyways, that was fascinating, and. I don't know. I really thought she was wonderful and knowledgeable. And, and it, I liked how she said she wanted the the thieves in a crypt.
3: Right? <laughs> she you, was okay.
1: You do not mess with the
2: yeah. Adams National Historical Park. No. Or curator Kelly Cobbles. Right? <laughs> Yeah, you don't mess with her or that place. Um, I don't know. She had a little bite at the end there like that. <laughs> totally, yeah. I liked that about her. Yeah.
1: It was really great talking to her. And the full interview is available to our Patreon supporters and I encourage you to check that out.
2: I'm going to check that
1: out. Um, you have to um actually join our Patreon.
2: Oh, aren't I like automatically a member?
1: Um do you have
2: access to, you just text it to me would you
1: <laughs> um, it doesn't share that way you're gonna have to sign up i'm
2: gonna have to sign up for
1: Patreon. <laughs> yeah okay
2: thanks yeah. we'll do we'll do
1: all right and now i'm gonna tell you a story all right this is a story of a heist Ooh. an fbi investigation <gasps> and karma
2: are we gonna hear about the thievery of the mendy bible we might Oh, I was really fascinated to hear more about that. But the interview didn't really include the details because it would have been a little further off topic than the (laughs) library itself.
1: You know, I go where the story takes me. Yeah, you took the story
2: is is the reality of that. I heard. So Um, tell us.
1: Yes. It's also the story of some disgraceful behavior. Mm, Sounds like it. Speaking of which, um, you know how you said that you think you fell asleep in the theater while watching Amistad?
2: Yeah, I don't like to admit that, but I think it did happen. you're
1: a disgrace?
2: (laughs) I was a teenager. Exactly.
1: Your brain was barely even functional.
2: It was functional. Barely functional. It it wasn't developed fully, but it was functional. It was like a
1: raw egg. Thanks, babe. Mm -hmm. Well, on Martin Luther King Day in 1994, school was out, but a field trip was organized for a group of high school students. These high school students from Oakland, California, they uh, went to see a movie and then go ice skating on this field trip.
2: That sounds nice. It sounds functional.
1: Right. They wanted to see House Party 3. But instead, their teacher took them to see a Steven Spielberg movie.
2: Called Amistad?
1: Schindler's List.
2: Oh, man.
1: Yeah. There's It's rough. Yeah. There's a great This American Life episode about this, by the way.
2: My dad took me to see Schindler's List and I was very young. Yeah. I, I, I probably was too young. Maybe. So these teenagers went to see Schindler's Lust with their teacher instead of House Party 3.
1: Yes. And those kids did what kids sometimes do they talked, they were antsy, and they reacted inappropriately to scenes of shocking violence. Oh. Some other people seeing the movie complained, and the theater owner actually stopped the projector and told them to leave.
2: Wow.
1: And these kids were mostly black. Uh huh. And it became a thing. About these black kids being intolerant to the suffering of Jews, and it was kind of blown out of proportion a little bit Uh in in the media, and it became a huge embarrassment for the school.
2: Oh wow!
1: And it ended up a lot
2: of layers there.
1: Yeah, it ended up with a school wide assembly with the mayor of California. Oh my god! And Steven Spielberg. (gasps) Oh, at the school. Yeah.
2: Oh, people you don't want to piss off.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, They're
2: just kids.
1: No, um, no. Steven Spielberg approached it from a very understanding place. Okay. Of saying, you know, hey, I was kicked out of Ben-Hur for talking when I was a kid. (laughs) Um, It was all about fostering discussion and understanding That resulted in an educational program implemented all across the country of showing Schindler's List in high schools. Wow. Which might be why I watched it in high school.
2: Interesting. Um, Oh, that's rough. That's a violent film to show.
1: Yes. Um, But at that assembly at Castlemont High School, there was a discussion. And one student asked Spielberg, why don't you make a Schindler's List about us? Wow. And that stuck with him. And he later said that that was his inspiration to make Amistad.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing.
1: I'm not sure if that's how he pitched it at the time.
2: Yeah.
1: A Schindler's List for Black People that, yeah. Right. Not on the poster.
2: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. How this incident in a theater with some kids led to a discussion about these things. And, and um, then a movie depicting
2: yeah. their history.
1: Right. During pre-production for the movie, some researchers were actually set to visit the Adams National Historical Park mm-hmm. and the Stone Library mm-hmm. uh, in November of 1996, but they were told they were going to have to wait because there had been a robbery at the Stone Library. Oh. Um, as curator Kelly Cobble told us, mm-hmm. the library was built to house John Quincy Adams' books. Mm-hmm. Um, he specifically requested that it be fireproof. So it was built of stone. Again, pure fire. Yeah. So he built a quaint medieval stone building. Of course, there's a fireplace inside of it and it's a (laughs) library. So the walls are lined with kindling.
2: Oh, my goodness. What are you going to do? Yeah. But I just kept picturing you in that library, you know?
1: Yeah. Speaking of picturing it, uh, Google Maps actually has a, a feature where you can sort of walk around inside of it and really get a sense of it. Oh, that's magical. Here, click on this link.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: And you can move around in there.
2: That is even more beautiful than I remember. Right? Wow. Yeah. There's a window out to this beautiful garden. These books just, I mean, they're just gorgeous. I know. And the lighting is so cozy.
1: I know. It was in this building. It it wasn't just a library. It was really an office for Charles Francis Adams and then later uh, Henry Adams to write volumes of books in there. I mean, it was like a working library for the family.
2: That might be the most beautiful library I've seen. It's, it's quaint and approachable. I want to go. Yeah, me too. I I really do want to go.
1: So I'll take you to Monday, November 11th, 1996. Mm -hmm. The park had just closed for the season the day before Mm because they're closed over the winter. 7 45 PM. Someone breaks into the stone library with an electric saw.
2: Oh my god.
1: They removed one of the panels on an oak door, crawled through it, grabbed four books from the table in the center of the room, and went right back out through that hole in the door.
2: So, I mean, that sounds pretty intentional.
1: Yeah. They were in and out in 60 seconds. In the process, they tripped an alarm. Police were there in five minutes, but it was too late.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a long time, five minutes.
1: Yeah. It was immediately clear to the park authorities what was stolen, the Mendy Bible and two other rare Bibles, one that belonged to Louisa Adams, John Quincy Adams' wife, mm. and a book called Bloch's Ichthyology. What is that? It's a really, really old book with hand-painted pictures of fish.
2: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. So when you steal priceless artifacts from a national park, you don't just get the local police on the case. You also get the FBI.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. And you think they went through all this trouble and didn't even know that?
1: Uh, No. No, I think they knew.
2: Oh, they knew. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, wow. So what do you think their plans for these books were?
1: Oh, we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah. The lead FBI agent put on the case was a man named David Nadolsky. Okay. And he's recounted the story of this case in in articles and podcasts. And it's also featured in his upcoming book, The Con and the FBI Agent, that's coming out in February of 2022. Okay. This book reads like a hard-boiled crime novel. It's exactly what you'd (laughs) hope it would be from a seasoned investigator. Mm. And it's really the bigger story of Nadalski's relationship with a criminal informant that ended up stopping a different case in the Boston crime world, An armed robbery that that would have involved tens of millions of dollars. Wow. And it also involves the heist at the Isabella Gardner Museum in Boston of all those paintings. That's what the Netflix show, This is a Robbery, the World's Greatest Art Heist was about. Oh, wow. Nadolsky was part of that.
2: Oh, cool. This guy's been around.
1: Yeah. Um, And that's all part of his book.
2: Oh, wow. I might have to take up reading again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well. Been a little busy. It's it's time. Uh,
2: Yeah. It might be time to take up some reading.
1: Yeah. Um, so there wasn't much to go on in the beginning. Some locals said they saw a station wagon parked near the library around the time of the robbery, but pretty vague. Mm -hmm. Then they got word that someone wanted to help. An inmate at a local prison who said he knew who took the books. Nadolsky and Tom Healy from the Quincy Police Department, they went to visit this prisoner, a guy named Tony Romano mm-hmm he's this tough tattooed guy who's sort of aloof he's been in and out of jail for drug charges for years uh, and his family's tied to a big crime family in boston but nadolsky goes in there and he treats him with respect because you get what you give
2: mm-hmm. karma <laughs>
1: and romano likes that he tells him i know who took the books it was this guy kevin gilday romano says hey i've known this gilday guy for a long time he always talked about breaking into the stone library and stealing those books Mm. as leverage. Or... So he could negotiate with the police if he ever got in legal trouble.
2: Right, which is what that documentary was about, how paintings were stolen in order to gain leverage in police negotiations. Yes,
1: that was a big thing. That was probably, it could have been Nadolsky talking about that.
2: Interesting.
1: Yeah, the idea is, you know, return the books and the other charges go away. Wow. This had worked for others like that documentary talks about. Mm -hmm. So Tony Romano says, check if Gilday is in trouble right now. Mm. You won't even need to find him. His lawyer will reach out to you to make a deal. Wow. Yeah. And this is where the karma comes in Uh even more. See, Romano was holding a grudge against Gilday uh-huh. because Gilday tried to have him killed in prison. Oh, wow. And Romano was more than happy to stick it to Gilday when he had the chance. Okay. Yeah.
2: It's a little scary, though, sticking it to someone who is currently free and you're still in prison.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean... Well, this was all on the, the DL. I mean, okay. um, they weren't even meeting in the prison. Okay. Yeah. So as soon as the FBI guy and the cop left the jail, they got word that someone wanted to talk to them.
2: Of course. The A lawyer, lawyer yeah, the day.
1: yeah, so they meet this lawyer. And I mean, they're like two kids who've already found their christmas presents and they know what they're getting but their parents are saying i'm not telling
2: right um
1: this lawyer is like i represent someone who didn't take the books but believes that he can get them back in exchange for clearing up some legal trouble over a little gas station robbery Uh, and they're like okay well let's talk to him let's let's bring him in and the lawyer's like "No, no no that's that's not how this works (laughs) and nadalski's like listen up you tell kevin gilday there's no deal he needs to return what he stole right now or we're gonna find him (sighs) and the lawyer's head
2: explodes okay yeah what does he do
1: what can he do you know they just kind of walk out
2: wow so that's kind of a big bluff because they definitely want those books back
1: (laughs) yeah but i mean they they basically at this point know who their purpose Uh and they're pretty confident about it yeah um, we've got Nadolski's side of the story, but i really like to see the lawyers call back to Gilday. <laughs> like, hey, how'd the meeting go? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's one billable hour. Do uh, so you want to take care of the payment first? or? Wow. No?
2: Yeah, that did not go as planned.
1: That's not a great meeting.
2: No, that's I mean, and he went through this whole robbery to to get out of legal trouble and that doesn't even work.
1: So now that they have Kevin Gilday's name, they can start looking for him. They track his girlfriend to an apartment, and the neighbor says um, that she has a station wagon, like the one that was spotted near the crime scene. And she's always parking in their spot. And hey, do you want the license plate number?
2: <laughs>
1: Just like karma, right. um, Kevin and his girlfriend had pissed this guy off. Yeah. So he gave their license this plate number. This guy's
2: pissing a lot of people off, it yes. like. <laughs> yes. And the karma's coming after him.
1: It comes around.
2: So what happened?
1: Well, at this point, they still don't have him. He okay. knows the cops are coming for him, <laughs> the feds even. Mm-hmm. Um, with this license plate, they run that and they're able to find an alias for him that he's using. And they also trace that to a mailbox drop-off location that he uses and they go there and the clerk looks at a picture of him that the, they show him and they say, oh yeah, that guy's here every day at the same time. So they do <laughs> they a stakeout.
2: Said, what time is he here? <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: They do a stakeout he shows up and they nab him and the station wagon
2: Oh cool did they find the books in the station wagon
1: No the books are not in the station wagon <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah <laughs> But they do find a couple interesting things. Oh, really? Yeah. These, In the station wagon. Yeah. These are called clues. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's the legal term. Uh, they find membership cards. I to think a- they call them leads. Leads. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the
2: new word for clues.
1: Yeah. And they say jinkies every time they find one.
2: That's what they say.
1: <laughs> or, <laughs> <"Huzzah!">
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> they find a couple membership cards to different gold gyms under oh. an alias. And they find... I think this was in his pocket, actually, a piece of paper with three numbers written on it.
2: Ooh, it's getting interesting. Yeah, Time to break the code. Yeah. So were the books in Gold Jim's lockers?
1: You know, you should be a federal investigator. Uh,
2: I'm that good.
1: You are that good. Uh, Nadolsky questions Gilday, but he doesn't budge. And then on the way out of the room, Nadolsky says, oh, by the way, Tony Romano wanted me to tell you that payback's a bitch. Gilday's head
3: explodes.
1: (laughs) Nadelski puts on sunglasses and he walks out of the building and the building explodes behind him and he just keeps walking. He lights a cigarette and he smokes the whole thing in one drag. (laughs) Then we cut to theme songs with lots of drums and saxophones. Roll credits. Throw roses at the TV screen. Pop some champagne. Pour some Gatorade. It's over, man.
2: (laughs) I can't wait to see what you're going to come up with for this parrot parody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) when i write the script for exactly a, it's not a parody it's a serious audio tour by a of andrew jackson's hermitage narrated by paul the parrot with profanity right for adults right thank you but it's not quite over they know they got their guy but they can't prove it
2: mm, it's so frustrating then
1: because their investigators are as smart as you they piece together that maybe those numbers in his pocket might be a combination for a lock a lock at a Gold's Gym. Oh. So they go to the Gold's Gym in New Hampshire and they ask about unclaimed items. And they say, you know, how long do people keep stuff in there? The answer is not long hmm. because if stuff is left in a locker, uh, that lock is cut and whatever's in there is just tossed in the Lost and Found.
2: Oh God, were the books in the Lost and Found?
1: They check the Lost and Found and they find a backpack with a cut padlock on top of it. Uh, they open it up, and inside, wrapped in a towel, is the Mendy Bible and oh, another one of the books.
2: Oh my god! Yeah. Uh, why do you think Cobble had the story wrong?
1: You know, uh, it was a long time ago. And I mean, a lot of this this book and podcast and an article, all this stuff from Nadolsky is pretty new. recent. Okay. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. You got to get his book to really feel like you're just a hard-boiled detective in it because it's <laughs> it's just exactly what you want. It's, yeah.
2: Well, that's really exciting. Yeah. I'm really happy they found them.
1: Yes. Well, they found two of them. Oh. Here. So they got the Mendy Bible back. That's the big thing. But they wanted more evidence to actually convict Gilday.
2: Right. Well, I mean, it's pretty clear trail.
1: Not as clear as they'd like. Because they, they weren't allowed to dust the book for prints because that could damage it. Mm. So now, cut to see What C- about the
2: backpack? I, they dust the backpack? I,
1: I, maybe they could dust the backpack. I don't know. Should
2: have dusted that backpack.
1: Ah, oh, damn. So now, cut to CSI Quantico. <laughs> the FBI lab is able to examine the broken padlock and determine what the combination was before it was cut. Wow. They send the combination to Nadolski and the numbers match the paper in Gilday's pocket exactly. Nice. Boom goes the dynamite.
2: <laughs> As if the gym membership wasn't enough. I mean. Right. You think that'd be enough.
1: Having it, an alias
2: of a gym membership and then the books being there.
1: Yeah. Um, they found the other books at another Gold's Gym. Mm. And there was this. That was
2: not smart on Gildy's
1: part. You know, I really, I I don't know when he stashed them there. I have to think that he had no idea that this Tony Romano guy was going to rat him out. Right. So he he probably had them someplace else, and then when he realized that you know they were onto him, stashed them wherever he could.
2: Right. You know, maybe do one set in the Gold's Gym. And then another set in a totally different location. Like a different
1: gym? Like a 24-hour fitness? or
2: <laughs> At least change <laughs> the brand. Yeah. Just because, I mean, you find one set in the Gold's gym. Yeah, You wouldn't expect to find the others in a Gold's gym. It's just not very smart.
1: That's maybe exactly why he did it. Because you wouldn't expect to find the <laughs> other two in another Gold's gym. It's just odd. He's playing four-dimensional chess.
2: Okay, yeah. I don't want to pretend like we can think like criminals, but I think I'd be a better criminal than you.
1: You know, I don't doubt you it. You
2: can be the interpreter. I'll be the criminal mind. <laughs> okay,
1: okay. I'll be the criminal informant. <laughs> i am like, it was her. <laughs> she did it.
2: Check the golds, Jim.
1: <laughs> um, so there was this big press conference ceremonial return of the books with the descendant of the Adams family there accepting them. The Mendy Bible is now back on that table. And it's only left twice, I believe. It was used for the swearing-in during both inaugurations of a Massachusetts governor, Deval Patrick, their first African-American governor.
2: Amazing.
1: Yeah. Nadolsky saw to it that the informant, Tony Romano, got the reward money for information leading to the return of the books. I think it was $5,000. Mm. And that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship <laughs> of sorts. And that's the basis for the rest of his book, the con and the FBI agent. Wow! Available for pre-order now. Uh, as for Kevin Gilday, he pled guilty in 2000 to stealing the books. Uh, I think he represented himself, which is—I don't know if that's ever been a good idea.
2: Mm, yeah, I've never seen that work out well.
1: No, he was sentenced to two years in prison and two years that's of supervision. It. Oh my gosh! Probably because they got the, the books back. Yeah. Curator Kelly Cobble, she seemed to think the thief must not have known what he was taking or that the FBI would be involved. But as it turned out, he knew exactly what he was taking and he wanted to get the feds attention so he could negotiate.
2: Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. He got their attention. But as he found out, can you get ready to make the law and order like dun dun noise when I point yeah. to you? But as he found out, there's no negotiating with karma. Dun dun dun. No, no it's just dun dun. Like the law and order. You know, like, don't, Okay. Okay. But as he found out, there's no negotiating with karma. Dun, dun. That is the story of the heist at the Stone Library.
2: That is very cool. Yeah. And now you're going to have to watch that documentary. I totally am. It really am. is very interesting about why, you know, these historical pieces are stolen.
1: Yes. You can see these full interviews on our Patreon. And there's so much more to check out at plodpod.com. Click on the show notes, get lost in the blog. Uh, Click on this link to feel like you're in the stone library. Uh, Run on over to our merch shop, Behold Some Glorious Shirts. Uh, I don't know if this will be up yet when this airs, but there's a Hamilton shirt coming that might be the peak of my terrible, wonderful puns.
2: (laughs) It's pretty awesome. It involves gremlins.
1: Yes. And next week, we've got a treat for you.
2: Oh, yeah? For me?
1: For you and our
2: listeners.
1: (laughs) I'm very excited to be talking with the authority on ghost stories in New England, a man who literally wrote the book on White House hauntings. Oh. The host of the PBS show and podcast New England Legends, Jeff Belanger.
2: Oh, that's exciting.
1: Yes. And until then... Happy Halloween, and thank you for plotting.
2: Thank you for plotting and for listening to our interviews. We're so excited to be listening and plotting with you.
3: Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun.